This is the Traversityist. I'm Gretchen Carr. I invite you to join me on an exploration of the regional culture in and around Traverse City, Michigan. If you are new to this podcast, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes. The Traversityist is supported by friends who give monthly or annual contributions. You too can become a friend. Learn more at TraverseCityist.com. This episode of The Traversityist is sponsored by Sarah Bourgeois Architects. Learn more at sbourgeois.com. As citizens of Traverse City, we can and must be involved in defining the vision to guide Traverse City's future. But sometimes we feel we cannot make a difference, or we may feel we do not have the knowledge to effectively contribute to the process. Some people feel Traverse City does not have to be planned because it has always been the way it is. Some believe that planning infringes on private property rights. Private property rights are important, and so is our sense of place. As citizens, we all must become involved in defining the vision to guide Traverse City's future. This episode features a conversation with five Traverse City architects, Susanna Tobin, Ray Kendra, Peter Smith, Michael Fitzhugh, and Ken Richmond. Architecture, Design, and Community Influence was recorded on October 17, 2023 at the Alluvian in Traverse City, Michigan. The production was conceptualized by Jill Vincent of Through and Open Eye Media and co-produced with The Traversityist. It was made possible with the support of Boomerang Catapult and Tusentuck Foundation. It is important to note that in the beginning of the conversation, a specific drawing and several buildings in and around Traverse City are discussed. You can view these images on the episode page of our website, traversityist.com. Good evening. Welcome to Architecture, Design, and Community Influence. My name is Gretchen Carr, and I'm the producer and the host of The Traversityist, a podcast about the people that create the culture in the Grand Traverse region. Our panelists tonight are five Traverse City architects. Susanna Tobin on my far right, Ray Kendra immediately to my right, Michael Fitzhugh on my left, Ken Richmond in the blue, and Peter Smith in the orange of Design Smiths. Our discussion will focus on elevating awareness for enduring design and the importance of community involvement. We're going to begin our conversation with this image created for this event, and it was drawn by Michael Fitzhugh. Michael, why don't you tell us the story behind this drawing? Okay, thank you. Um, I was asked to produce a sketch for this event that uh, represents what it is we're talking about, and I waited a long time, and then this is what I came up with. The reason I drew this is to represent the, I guess, my idea of what the general public's impression of new buildings versus old buildings might look, or, or the general sense of it. So 
I'm trying to convey the layers, the layers of history, the layers of culture that get laid down in a, in a normal town. So if you've got the older buildings from the 1890s, they've got the scale of humans. They were built by local people using local materials. And they have this, this thing called character, which is a word that will probably come up again at some point. So full of character. And the buildings are now 130 years old. So we have this historical, historical layer applied over all of this character. And um, at some point, this future, this is my opinion, the future that we were all promised with the Jetsons and Space Age stuff, like it's, it's finally coming here, but it's, it's weird. It's a weird future that we never really anticipated as far as what it was going to look like and how it was going to function. And I think we've got a little bit of a, a clash of the new and old. So when you see this, this new building behind, it's, it's big and it's awkward and it's drawn kind of mean and I didn't really mean to characterize it as being mean, but it does sort of look, looks kind of mean. But what it represents to me, though, is the new, sort of our new globalized world. Like this building, it wasn't built by local people or local materials, and it's not of a scale that relates to anything human anymore. Like for whatever reason, we, we can build bigger, we use bigger windows, taller. Everything is, is sort of of a non-human scale these days. And I think that that might have something to do with the, uh, the out-of-placeness that they have. So when we, as, as architects, we're supposed to use these new materials and build with this new style, and then also at the, at the same time introduce a little bit of character so they blend in with the old 130-year-old buildings. And I think it's, it's difficult, to say the least. I'm not giving excuses, but I'm trying to set up the, the general sense of what, what we're all dealing with. We have this beautiful downtown, and then you see these new buildings come in, and they're scary looking, and they're, they're odd, they're from a different planet, they're housing people that don't necessarily live here all the time. So it's, a, it's just this new globalized world we live in, and how do we, how do we blend all this together? Uh, that's the question. So how do we blend all of it together? I've asked each of our panelists to list defining buildings, and this will be the slideshow transition here, the defining buildings within Traverse City and the region. I supplemented the list with a few additions. Uh, the images here behind me will be uh, shown on slow loop as we discuss them. This list does not contain every major building or every prominent architect, so it is to be expected that some of you may be disappointed with the list, but what this list of buildings does explore is the city's history, which is a starting point for a good design and context. Some of your lists had commonalities. Three of you listed the iconic State Hospital and the Park Place, and two of you included the City Opera House and the Courthouse. So let's begin with Susanna. You listed the Park Place, the State Hospital, the Con Foster Museum, which is now the Bijou, the Okerstrom Fine Arts Building on the campus of Northwestern Michigan College, and the Delamar Resort. So my list, I used my childhood in Traverse City as my inspiration because those were the buildings that affected me when I was growing up here. So not so much where I am now, but where I was in 1970, which was growing up in the neighborhood by the college, and playing in the woods and uh, coming upon that fine arts building sort of blew my mind. We played in that building. It had just, I think, opened up in 1972. We 
used that as like it was open to us. We hid in the weird shaped rooms. The lighting was amazing. The trees were front and center and it smelled like cedar and clay. So that was pretty important building to me growing up. Um, at the other end of the city, the state hospital was kind of scary. It was magical and kind of creepy and like important because it kind of was the edge for me. So at the one edge of the beautiful building and the college and then the other edge, the sort of scary castle and then in between was the like the monopoly city of Traverse City with the Park Place Hotel being the special tall building and the it was just always like the epicenter of all things Traverse City. And the Con Foster Museum was right next to a scale model of Traverse City that used to be there. The buildings were at a quarter inch scale. There were like a hundred different buildings, and it was like a miniature downtown Traverse City, and that was really cool as a child to be able to sort of like walk around those buildings and so those were like big influences to me growing up here. Thank you, Susanna. They defined Traverse City for me. Peter of Design Smiths, you list the Pump House on East Front, the Glen Haven Canning Company, the Botanic Garden Visitor Center, McGow's, the City Opera House, and the Crib Lighthouse, or the North Manitou Light as it's also known. Yeah. Um, funny enough, started with some of my childhood references as well, um, mainly being the crib. Think of that as just this pure utilitarian building. And uh, it wasn't until recently I found out that it's, it's built on a big square plinth. And then the actual lighthouse function and the rest of the building is at a 45 degree angle to everything else. And from what I've learned through uh, my neighbor Jake is that he can't figure out why. It was just this interesting move that was put into this completely utilitarian building that kind of gave it an extra dimension, an extra level of interest. And I, and I just find that pretty fascinating. Um, and then skipping ahead to do some of those projects, I, I, when I moved here full time, I think the, uh, the visitor center at the Botanic Garden, I, I just, I, really appreciated that building as being a reusing of a structure and the implementation of a lot of more contemporary, more modern language in it. And it's, it kind of speaks to both what was there and what can be. And I just found that inspiring. Uh, thanks, Ray. Um, <clears throat> I've already forgotten the other ones I listed. So uh, You also <laughs> listed uh, the McGow's, oh, the City Opera House. Uh, I think, did you talk about McGough's? McGough's. McGough's, sorry. Um, no, I didn't. Uh, it, I kind of just love that there's still a big barn in the middle of our city. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> speaks to the past. Uh, it's, it's kind of a holdout, but I, I could see it being reimagined in, in a very contemporary way using those forms and everything. And the, the City Opera House is just a, a fantastic, <clears throat> very large building that... Um, manages to keep all the, the humane scale and character that Michael was referencing earlier. So. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Ken, you listed the Old State Hospital, the Hanalei Building, Park Place, the Courthouse, the Main Branch Post Office, Sixth Street, the Sixth Street Houses, the Central Grade School, and the Boardman Building. I'm always looking for the local vernacular. I'm always trying to 
figure out w what belongs here and what doesn't. And so looking at this list of buildings, I, I think I'm trying to define w what makes us who we are in a unique way. Um, I, don't, I resist the whole idea that every town should look alike and that we should all be doing the same buildings for everywhere around the globe. So the starting point for me is trying to define what that means. You know, and it's different for everybody. It's, it's northern, right? So I'm looking for things that represent where we live in a northern way. We're rural, at least we always were. Uh, there's a level of summer architecture going on here that's, that I've always loved. I think we also were a, a prosperous, relatively speaking, sort of up and coming town. You know, we, uh, we were climbers in the sense that we were striving and building opera houses and mansions up here in the middle of nowhere. And, and that, to me, that's all part of the context of what we build and what our buildings should reflect and look like. And that is the, that is the challenge of architecture, I think, is defining the context. You know, you're, you're given the context when you're given a site, but what you put there is really up to how you define what belongs there. And if you, if you don't start with the context and you, some version of the context, it doesn't matter where you're putting the building. It's the, it's the ultimate sort of challenge and none of us agree on what that, what that is either for the record. Thank you, Ken. And Ray, you listed, you had two sections. The historic buildings, you list the uh, historic bar Barnes Park <coughs> with the new botanic gardens uh, and the building 50. The historic courthouse at Washington and Boardman, the Carnegie Library, the entire downtown, the, cad the candle factory, and then you also list the new beta. Well, let's not do newer buildings. New, let's, let's, not do, let's, okay. stay, yeah. let's stay right there, but yeah. I, I will add that what was the Chamber of Commerce building that mm -hmm. I thought that was a great inclusion because I, I miss it. So I think that for me, what I, the commonality between the buildings I list are all things that I don't think as architects today we can do. So it's like I look at Building 50 and I look at the Cathedral Barn and I look at, you know, the Carnegie Building and it's like we've, I think to some extent, what I th feel like we're dealing with is we don't have craftsmen anymore or we have a very limited craftsmen, the craftsmen are, we're losing the craftspeople. So I think that when I look at those old buildings with all the brickwork or even the woodwork of like the cathedral barn, it's like, how did they build that? And then we'll ask somebody like Angelo or other structural engineers to say, how do we do this? Because we sometimes feel, I feel like we don't know how to do it, but there we know how to do it. We just have, we were losing the ability to, to do it. So it's like, that's, I guess my, fear or what we look at. So all my buildings are all these like really fabulous masonry buildings and stonework and things like that. And I think that that's what I hope that we can keep doing. And even if it's modern, it's still good, but it's, I don't want to lose that historical context. So it's not so much the forms, it's more of the craftsmanship, I guess, is what appeals to me as an architect and, and what we strive to do, so. Thank you, Ray. And Michael. You list the Park Place, the Grand Travers Resort Tower, Logan's Landing, and the City Opera House. Yeah, I tried to pick a couple of standards and a couple of outliers for us. So the Park Place, the Opera House, they're beautiful, they're Traverse City. I don't think anyone would deny that. So um, 
the tower at the Grand Traverse Resort, I, I really don't know. I, if, if I had been hired to design it, I don't know what I would have done. It's um, maybe not that, but there's a lot of square footage to fit on a, so a, towers are tough. We've only got one up here, so um, I don't know if we have anything to judge it against. Maybe that's not a very interesting thing, but to me it just looks like one of the little condos that's been made, you know, 30 stories high, and it, it kind of looks like that from, from afar. Um, from very, very far distances, you can see that building. Um, but the other, like Logan's Landing, being a kid here and seeing that place like in its heyday, uh, I'm not going to get too, too caught up in it, but man, what a cool place. What a great opportunity that, that has not been uh, brought to fruition, in my opinion. And that for whatever reason, <coughs> we're going to watch that thing just slowly sink into the mud. And uh, all the value of the property and the potential for whether it's retail or commercial or a, you know, a, a hub for the Boardman River and the Boardman Lake and, and all of these great, you know, the Tart Trail, like there's, there's a lot going on there. And also there's some intriguing history to it that leads to where it is today that I'm not gonna get into, but um, to me it's, it's just one of those, we all drive by it, we have to, we drive by it constantly and I just, I, I, get, I get dreamy every time. <laughs> Gretchen, can I just say one more thing? Yes. I forgot one building. It's the Del Mar, which is actually the Holiday Inn. So growing up in Traverse City, that building was, it stood out to me because it was, unbeknownst to me, designed by Alden Dow, who's one of the most famous architects in the state of Michigan. But when I was growing up, it was like, oh my God, that cool building. You couldn't see the windows because they all faced the bay and they were, each of the fins were covered with a weathered cedar shingle. So it just was like this stealth, natural building on the bay that felt really woodsy and kind of like seashore-y and kind of like, it was, it was special. I'm glad to see that they removed the styrofoam panels that replaced the cedar shingle siding and now it's faux cedar shingle siding, but it's a lot better than the styrofoam, which was heartbreaking. So I, I, that's great. Yeah. Thank you, Susanna. All right, now we're going to go to the next subject. Uh, we no longer need the slideshow, but if it stays up, it's just mm. fine. We're going to go to architects in the community. I recently interviewed a Canadian architect named Douglas Cardinal, who has spent the majority of his career designing for First Nations communities. One of his designs is the Strong Heart Civic Center in Leelanau County. He told me that architects and their communities have the responsibility to make a difference on the planet. He stated, let's not produce a heritage of junk for the next generation, but a heritage of beauty and creativity and a heritage of belonging. So let's talk about the role of the architect in relation to the other players when a project is proposed. Who are the other players and what is the pecking order? Peter or Ray, who would like to start? Well, the project starts with, with a client, always starts with a client first. And when we are engaged, we are, are set up to solve a problem, whether it's the, their, their program or their goals. And so we, we invite the team and we create that as, as far as any engineering 
specialists, uh, project by project, it kind of ebbs and flows with who's required. But we're also in the trenches with the uh, city planners and zoning administrators, um, the road commission. Uh, there's just, it takes a large group to make these projects come together. Um, and our role in all of it is, I feel, is coordinating that team and leading the discussions and educating our clients and our other, other members of the team into our goals and what we're trying to achieve as far as aesthetics, functionality, sustainability, accessibility. I don't know, Ray, say something. But I, I guess, <laughs> I think ultimately, it, the client is the first, the reason we have a project is because we have a client. So, you know, so I think that the client is the most important piece of the puzzle. We're just taking the vision of what our clients have or what their client's vision is and helping them make it real by pulling all those different pieces together. When we were rehearsing this with yeah. you mm -hmm. uh, a month ago, Gretchen, you asked the, our, us as a group, so what if you had a site and you could do anything you wanted? And we all went, Nightmare. Deer in headlights, nightmare. <laughs> we, we need to start with something like the client. I mean, that was, mm -hmm. you know, but I think that's that where we start. The fact that we have all, this group of people here and everybody's interested in being engaged with architecture, I think it's really, that's an important piece, is that, that people have to care about what's getting built, and the people who are writing the checks have to care about what's getting built, too. So it's very important that the because ultimately we're working for the client period but then we have to balance our you know what we know about context you were talking about context and we always look at context as the first jumping point but then those boxes of setbacks in height restrictions and all that sort of thing inform the ultimate product at the end would you say that already if someone's hired an architect that they already care about design and want you to be able to help them make something worthy or would they just be like, design, build, I'm a developer, I don't need an architect. So I feel like if someone hires an architect, they're already, they already know that they can't do it. They already know that they need to have a professional. And they value design. And they value design. Yeah. But sometimes we get hired, and I don't like to do this to the, the get out of jail free card, where the, the people have gotten themselves in a heap of trouble. And then they go, oh, I need an architect. <laughs> and yeah. that's... Uh, we don't like working for those people no. because they've already they've already made the bed and um, they I think need to a, lie in it. yeah they need to lie in it I think a, a, as a young architect <laughs> starting out I took a, I took a lot of those projects and I learned a lot by doing them and then you see them coming now mm -hmm. but, you say no but weirdly all of us here whether clients believe it or not we are always trying to make the project better or mm -hmm. the best it can be we're often not getting paid more to do it. And there's no incentive financially for us to do that except that we want it to be better. And, it, and that's sometimes surprising for people to hear, but it's really who architects are. And it's not about how it's going to look when it's photographed. I've, I've had a client say that, you just want this to look good for your photographs. I don't even photograph my projects. <laughs> so no, it's not about that. It's like, because you want to do what's right. But why is that? I mean, do all professions work that way? <laughs> I mean, I, we want to believe that they do, I think. Okay, Les, so this is a great yeah. time to segue into, uh, let's talk about what your clients are wanting right now, residential and commercial. You can start with either one. 
Don't okay. get me started I mean, on residential. Go well, ahead. What? Well, residentially, <clears throat> Ken and I have been friends for a long time, so we often will travel together and we have very long discussions about this kind of thing. But um, it's I think residentially we're seeing a lot more what I would call modern architecture. So modern architecture is a style of architecture. Contemporary is a period of time. It's like right it's now. <laughs> yeah. So it's like mm -hmm. so we don't we say modern architecture, and I think that. We have projects, like we did a project in Elk Rapids in 2006, which would look like it was designed today. And I think that's what we're always striving to do is make something that's gonna be enduring so it's not this flash in the pan, uh, you know, just a fad or whatever else. And I think that's what we're always struggling with when we're doing modern architecture. But we, we started doing modern houses in particular because we were trying to bring the views inside. So it was kind of like this idea of looking through a bunch of little panes of windows is not as appealing to clients as to looking at a big pane of glass where you can see the whole view. And I mean, we've taken it, we had a project recently that we took it to the extreme where we had like 20 foot long by 10 foot tall pieces of glass. It's not for everybody because it's very expensive, but it was very cool to do. But the whole premise to me of modern architecture is about bringing the inside out or in, outside in, bringing those views, so. But is that what clients are really asking for? Because I find that Pinterest has kind of taken over the world of residential architecture. Mm -hmm. I think the uh, urban farmhouse or the white house with black windows is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's over this. Already. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, how do we maintain our regional identity? I mean, we do have lots of, I mean, farmhouses are historically have been here for. In less. context of a farm. Yeah, well, adhering. <laughs> Right, in context of, <laughs> yes, good. Well, but at, while adhering, the original question was, how can we maintain our regional identity while adhering to the latest in building technology? Is it, uh, keeping in mind efficient, local if possible. But I, I think that's materials again. So it goes mm -hmm. back down to what is like lead, the lead green building program talks about sourcing things within 500 miles of your job site. I think that's, we used to have to do it because that's how it was. We couldn't stretch out to California and get redwoods. We had to use pine or cedar, northern cedar instead of red cedar. So I think that to me, it's not so much about the style as it is about the materials. That's just. And, and Susanna's point about Pinterest, clients come to the table, some of you are here, with, uh, with all kinds of information that, that we never, they never had access to before. We were sort of the resource, the go-to people that could find all these things, and clients now bring them to me anyway and say, we want to do this, and there are things I haven't done or haven't thought about. And so they're way more sophisticated about what's available. And, it, and just because it's available does not mean you should do it. You know, the, the challenge is what's really appropriate? What really should we be doing? And that's, trying to answer your question, Gretchen, that's sort of what our role is, at least that's what I see my role. And I do think it's all about context. It so, totally is. You know, these... <clears throat> Let's talk about context more. Yeah. You know, the images that people think they want don't work in northern Michigan. So, you know, a big whole wall that opens up on Lake Michigan. I mean, yeah, it would work, but... Not that's for a, very long. Not for very long, and that's <laughs> a lot of wind infiltration and moisture, and it's just, like, some things just don't work here, and I think that... Our job is to help people understand that there are limits, and the limits don't necessarily mean that you can't get what you want. You just need to think about it differently so that you can feel good about what you're getting, but not 
you have to help them understand. And on a more positive side, you know, there's so many more gadgets that are coming by every year that we need to know about. And most of them are good for us to know about. And many of them make life better in these houses. And we're learning, we're learning with clients as it comes along. I mean, that's a, I, to me, that's a good thing that we have to keep up with to try to know what's going on. But we used to lead those discussions, and I just don't think we do. I think now we're chasing to keep up with what's the latest and greatest. But I think that, just so you all know, the, this context of this was going to be a discussion amongst, you know, trying to talk, because we all don't agree on this, because, like, opening up the wall, I love opening up the wall, because I think that what's cooler than on a great, you know, we always tell people that we don't have that many, well, depending on where you're at, but we don't have that many bugs on a site, for example. It's like, do you have to have a screen porch? In certain places, you don't. I mean, we don't have mosquitoes on the bays or the lake because of the winds and everything else. You go inland, you know, a half mile you do. So it's like, I like that, again, natural ventilation and how cool is it to live indoors to outdoors. And so I don't think, we we don't like to get stymied by those technical challenges because I think that's what we do, we can do today. I mean, we're much more savvy and intelligent and there's so much information. So to be able to figure out how to make it work and not be, a problem. I think the failure that we've seen lately has been materials. It's like the wrong materials installed the wrong way don't work. And mm -hmm. Whereas the traditional things like cedar works. It's like I almost want to, in a lot of times, we're doing cedar with no finish on it. What do you mean you can't, you, ha you have to put a finish on material. If you ventilate it properly and everything else, you don't. That's the true low maintenance is cedar with no finish on it. And that's a local material. So I think you know, the question was kind of framed as, you know, traditional versus modern, I think. And that's where everybody here has a little bit different approach to that. But it always comes back to what's appropriate. Like, what context are you seeing that drives you to make that decision? You know, you're deciding, we're all deciding how we define what that context is. And that's how we all make design decisions, is based on our version of whatever that context is. Well, but it's that context mixed with, like, how the clients going to live in the house like there's plenty of clients that raise lucky enough to have that i'm sure don't mind like camping on the site and so they can open up the wall they don't mind that feeling of being completely exposed and we have some of those too mm -hmm. where they do want to open it all up and it is about we do have the gadgets to make that work on the inside when it does weather does turn um the the materials are what kind of brings it back towards fitting in, blending in, you know, whether it's a box exquisitely detailed in cedar, then it, it can work. It can fit in, in my opinion. I think I'm going to chime in and say that one of the other issues we deal with is scale. I keep coming back to scale because we have well-intentioned clients and we can do these great materials and beautiful designs. And then you get a phone call one day and they say, guess what? We're going to add three bedrooms and a guest house, and a basketball court, and an indoor and outdoor basketball court, and, and a garage for 30 cars, you know I mean, it just, and then all of a sudden this thing that you had under control just blew up, and you have to now herd, herd all these cats back into a, some sort of, you know, form that works, and um, so I, I don't mean to keep bringing up like negatives, it's not really a negative, it's definitely part of the job, and we're trying to please the client's needs, but yeah, sometimes it's like, okay, this house is 
super efficient, it's beautifully designed, it's green, meets lead, but it's, it's got four furnaces in it. So what do you do? Like how do yeah. you, how can you claim that that's a really efficient way to vacation? So <laughs> anyway. I, it's let's, not, yeah, you, okay. you call them out on it. <clears throat> I do. <laughs> let's go to the next subject. Let's talk about the history of civic engagement in Traverse City. Suzanne, I'm gonna have you lead in on this one. Civic engagement in Traverse City has always been, I think um, since, again, I'll go back to the 70s when there were buildings along the parkway, factories, uh, power plants. Mm. The community, I just, you know, it, it, the community cares about Traverse City and I think that the engagement is pretty obvious with um, all that happened with the open space and clearing out the views. I think it happened with Building 50 when literally back in the day, the state of Michigan was showing up to demolish buildings. And before our time, back in the 70s, they actually stood in front of the wrecking ball for real. So I think that there have been opportunities that the community has seen as opportunities. And the civic engagement is such that people are willing to take action. And I feel like that's a, a defining characteristic of Traverse City. I th you know, there are lots of examples, you know, Hickory Hills, the Hickory Meadows. There are different parts of Traverse City that have had people who care about it get involved. So I, that, is that kind of what you were asking? Yeah, exactly. Anyone else want to comment on that civic engagement, history of Traverse City? What have historic historic districts done for Traverse City? So there are three historic districts. There's the Central Neighborhood Historic District, Boardman Neighborhood, and the Downtown, and that's it. So three historic districts. The Neighborhood Historic Districts have been here since the 1979, and the d Downtown, Ken? 90s. It's since the 90s. So, so those neighborhoods are protected because before anyone can do anything that requires a building permit, they need to get a historic district commission permit. And so that puts a lot of responsibility on the historic district commission to vet any building permit project. I think that it's done a really good job of protecting these areas and keeping the character intact. I think that some things sometimes slip through the cracks a tiny bit, but overall I think they've been successful. I will say that there are, I looked it up, there are 10 neighborhood associations in Traverse City. Do you want me to list them? They're, it's quick, I think I, have them, I think I have them memorized. So Slabtown, Kids Creek, Central Neighborhood, Boardman Neighborhood, Oak Park, Traverse Heights, Indian Woods, the newly formed base of Old Mission Peninsula. There's another one like Midtown Center where River's Edge is. Did I miss one? Pardon me? Oh, and Old Town, thank you. And so those are, there are 10, there are 10, and only two of those neighborhood associations are historic districts. So I went in and I kind of did a deep dive in chapter 1462 of the zoning ordinance, which is the historic district part of the zoning ordinance. Anyone can create or propose to create a historic district in any of these areas, or the historic district commission itself can instigate having a new district made or expand an existing one. So there's a, there's a whole process and it's outlined in chapter 1462 in the zoning ordinance about how to do this. 
So to me, I'm giving you this information because this is one way that the community can become engaged with wherever you live. If you, if you want to organize and get 51% of the people who live in your neighborhood to sign a petition and put it forward, there's a whole process. It's not, that's, there's more to it than that. But if you want to kickstart something, it's, the public can jump in anytime. It's, it's there. It's a, it's a tool. And it needs to be community-driven, right? Totally. I mean, the, well, planning, they, they, the, yeah. the Planning Commission can't assert themselves in no. this process. No. It's either it's... the Historic District Commission or <clears throat> the public can initiate it. It's a big deal. I mean, it's like, it's the one thing that could, in fact, create, you know, without design standards in the zoning ordinance, this is basically what we have as a, as a design standard because they come to us and we look at it and we say, that doesn't look good and here's why and, and here's what you need to change before we'll approve it or whatever. We're pretty nice, but it's like, it's, it's a, before they can get a building permit. I think that's kind of fun and everyone should, have, everyone should have fun with it. Do all, do all those neighborhoods have historic well, value? Well, you know what? That's up for them to, to decide. I think that, yes, they do, because Slabtown has its own history. You know, even, you know, the boom, the whole base of Old Mission Peninsula is like a sort of Brady Bunch mid-century vibe. Yeah. You know, these, the, the, the Buffy Hill neighborhood that's up by the country club, they're not in their own neighborhood per se, but they could make one. That's all mid-century. So I think yeah. that, you know, Indian Woods uh, by the college, that has its own vibe and its own, like, reason to be a place. So I think that it's just a matter of can you make a definition of what is special about an area and then go for it. And make it your own. I mean, that is the whole point. You know, we're not imposing somebody else's aesthetic or district on us. We're deciding what in this neighborhood is important as the people that live there and what do we want to maintain and what don't we care about. Yeah, so have at it. <laughs> it also, the, the question has to do with what historic districts do for Traverse City, I think. Sure, yeah. I, I mean, realtors will tell you it increases the value of homes within it, and you'll see ads for houses for sale that advertise that they're within the historic district. So, I mean, there's some... It does protect property values. I, I do think that. I think we've done it long enough to prove that's true. Yeah. To be totally crass. <laughs> so as we speak... The City Planning Commission is meeting right now to discuss the integration of design standards into our city ordinances. So let's talk about the difference, and, and uh, Suzanne, if you could provide, or either any of you, could provide us with uh, the definition of Euclidean design and form-based design. Those are the two uh, items in their packet tonight. And we just learned about Euclidean design today. So, so, just, I, yeah. so, cause, cause, so we're I, arguing I, about it. I yeah. did do the research, so I'm going to just, yes. this, I'll make it quick because I've been talking a lot. But So in 1926, Euclid, Ohio versus Amber Realty went before the United States Supreme Court and Euclid, Ohio won. And that basically set the standard for cities to have zoning ordinances by differentiating the uses. So residential, separate from commercial, separate from institutional and so in 1926 the zoning ordinances of cities in the United States came into being uh, so there, it's called Euclidean because it's named after Euclid Ohio and so that's the standard zoning and that's what we have in Traverse City and that's what most cities have so now we can like segue into a, another option which is form-based zoning 
someone. I mean, I'll talk about it, but I feel like I've been talking too much. We're learning a lot. <laughs> Do we think we know what form-based well, zoning I, is? I mean, I, I, I think, well, I'll tell you what I think it is. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't separate the uses. It, 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 it's about the form and the context, so that if you have an area that is like a certain scale, whatever you're putting in that area has to respect that context and, and that scale. So it's less division of use and it's more about the, the sort of massing and fitting in. And certain communities mm -hmm. uh, interpret it differently, like Seaside. Ray talked about Seaside earlier and it's really strict. It's a community in Florida that defines everything. And, and I know there's communities that use it that aren't that strict about it. So it, it's getting away, like Susanna said, from just deciding that you know, this is a factory and this is a residence. It has more to do with saying the buildings in this area should, should feel and look a certain way from a scale standpoint. And Peter, but, Peter oh. what, were, what was your comment about, at first you were like, yeah, I'm all on board for form-based design, but then we well, talked no, we, about it, and then it was like, well, wait, wait, maybe I'm not. <laughs> uh, well, we were talking about Seaside and, and the strictness of that one in particular, where everything looks the same and you have like choice of four colors. I'm being dramatic, but it's, it's very strict and everything looks very similar. And that to me is not um, exciting. That is not gonna create a vibrant downtown or uh, atmosphere. I, I think there is a, a good leeway in, in interpreting certain aspects of the zoning and, and the buildable area. And I, I don't know how to, to necessarily blend the two because there's obviously beneficial aspects of a Euclidean system versus the, the form-based, but. And what we were kind of talking about and how we described it though, is it was almost that form-based was three-dimensional and Euclidean is two-dimensional or, you know, yeah. basically. Mm -hmm. That is what we. Because it's gonna define what your roof height or roof slopes are, roof heights and window areas and things like that. So that was, it's, sounds good on paper and like ken said at the beginning we like to have constraints because if we have no constraints it's actually really hard as compared to having constraints but we also don't want too many constraints yeah. as a young guy i worked in a in santa barbara which was full of restraints and i chafed and i remember being told at one of these board meetings that a good designer rises to these occasions and creates better work for it so that's what I feel like telling you, Grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> Those kinds of restraints are for the, I think really on some level are for the, the good of the, the whole, for the whole community. Because we know what a town looks like without any restraints. We've been there, you, we all know what that looks like. We don't need to have that experiment here. We already know how it ends. Could you give some examples to remind some of us? Houston is perfect. Any, any, anywhere sprawl, shopping area, any, any of those areas that we all know everywhere. We know that's what it looks like if we let ourselves go, if we let uncontrolled. So let's segue to this. How do we accommodate the needs of our community without contributing to boundless sprawl and increasing the density of the urban core to the extent that the existing overall low density character is erased? If you were in charge, what would you do? I think it comes down to good design with a lot, of, a, a lot of constraints. You know, we know, we already know what a shopping center that's surrounded by a parking lot looks like. And I think, I'll say it's not good. 
And I don't think we have to live that way. There's so many examples of people living for hundreds of years without that sort of context that why we've decided in the last 60 years that that's the best model. It wasn't, it wasn't conceived of as the best model. It just happened. And so what was the You close know why point? it just happened? Because we of, zoned it that way. Because of Euclidean zoning. We zoned it that way. So back in the old days, you could have a grocery store in your neighborhood or you know, a school or a church or whatever, walkable. And when they separated the uses, then things got pushed out and you had to use your car to drive out from where you lived. I, I think that's the key, though. It was the automobile is what changed everything. So there was... I think the, both things. But there was we could have controlled how we used our cars in the same way we controlled how we used the uses. But could I think have. ultimately the form of the city was shaped by the fact that the automobile became how we got to the city. And that's why we like our neighborhoods and our historic neighborhoods in our walkable community because it goes back to that, it's walkable. And that's what new urbanism, that town that Ken was mentioning that we were talking about, Seaside and Rosemary Beach and all these kind of contrived places which are, that people gravitate towards is because you can walk to them. And I think that's, that's what we're still striving to do today, even in a place like Traverse City. And it kind of goes back to the parking deck conversation of, is it okay to create more parking decks so we leave our cars and walk to places or our parking deck's bad because if we don't park cars, which we have no choice, that's really defining how we create these or how we don't have sprawl. Or like this building here, it's like you have no parking and that was like an experiment. Everybody's like, you know, they're crazy. How are you gonna do a building with no parking? But I think it's working pretty well. And I think that the people who live here are able to like walk and so you don't need a car, but us collectively for the most part, probably all, rely on it. So I think it goes back to the automobile culture and we have to break out of that. And I think and that that problem is still occurring though. Unfortunately, like in, in Traverse City, we say it's got walkability and I can name a few stores like Deering's or, you know, these local markets, but there will never be more. You can't build a market or a bakery in the neighborhood downtown Traverse that's walkable because the zoning doesn't allow it. Current zoning. In, in the neighborhoods, in the but neighborhoods. it allows it in the downtown area. It allows it in the downtown, but, but yeah, there, there's big enough neighborhoods that they could handle another little bodega, grocery store, like corner market. Yeah, mm -hmm. there used to be. And like, so that's Didn't something your office used be, to be a grocery store, Peter? Yeah. yeah now yes. It was a general store Yeah, for a long time. Now it's a stuffy architect office, so <laughs> who wants to go there? <laughs> yeah. But that's, I think that's a, an example of like yeah. a real thing that could change. But or we have to want it to change, yeah. right? We have to know it. I don't like feeling like we're a, we have to always be a victim of the car mm -hmm. and that the towns evolved because they had to. We've made them do that. We consciously made decisions that allowed that to happen, and we're still doing it. And we know what it looks like if we leave it alone. And it's, it's on us now. We know what that looks like if we don't control it. So if it happens and we grouse, we, you know, and we didn't do anything about it, shame on us. It's about what we want, and we should be able to know, we, I mean all of us, to pursue that. Well, and back to Traverse City, I do feel that this is a small enough community where if you feel strongly about something, your voice, you know, it will be heard. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, commissioners are just regular people, and, you know, the Historic District Commission, <laughs> regular people, you know, it's nothing fancy, and it's just kind of like... 
it's like it really is sort of like people who show up make the decisions because they're the ones who are in the room and it's i feel like the public has an opportunity to take take something that they care about and and make sure it you know gets into the conversation so things that we care about let's segue to the final portion of this conversation successes mistakes and opportunities. Ken, let's talk about the river. One more thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Traverse, uh, Traverse City used to be quite dense, and there's photos of it from 60 years ago when there were many more buildings than there are. So the whole, uh, the whole debate that we all have here about density, it's, it's pretty eccentric in the sense that we were much more dense before. So anyway, that, uh, that's... I, but people like to talk about green building, and I always like to say, density is green, right? Right, for sure, so, oh, absolutely. And I think that's where people are afraid of what, what's happening to downtown and everything else and how it might change. But the fact of the matter is, the more dense we are, the greener we are. Right. So the, the river, that's actually under the category of like successes, mistakes, and opportunities, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a lot to lose, I think, in this town because we're, it's so intact. The actual village, the town itself is so... We've lost stuff even since we've been here, but it's, it's an incredible model for what a really healthy, vibrant, active town can be. So I, we have a lot to lose, and I always say that. Um, we're unique in a lot of ways, and I think we should celebrate that. We should not be afraid to say, we don't do it the way everybody else does it. We're our own thing, and we're really cool because of it. So uh, we should lead, even if it's not what other communities like us are doing. I, I think the real issues, I boiled it down to four. I think housing, you know, getting people, places to live appropriately, sprawl, which the more, the more we can encourage density in town, in theory, there's a little less sprawl. Michigan is one of a, a handful of states that has a, a, a really unusual government system where the townships have more power than others. So the idea of townships Working together across those little lines is very hard in Michigan. So we can, we can be a model in the little area of Traverse City and you can go 10 miles south and it's completely different. And it's very hard to bridge those gaps, but doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Our downtown is really important and the fourth thing is our neighborhoods are really important. So all these four things, housing, sprawl, downtown and neighborhood, are what we're trying to succeed at and what we have made mistakes at trying to control. I have a longer list too. It's we still what we want to keep on the river River. Though, so the river. in our early discussions, we were talking about things that Traverse City hasn't taken advantage of or hasn't really cashed in on. And the river is a great one. I mean, how many towns have a river that runs through it like three times and there's like five bridges and we're a little tiny town. I mean, if you, if you didn't, it would just be amazing if we celebrated that a lot more. And I don't see why we don't, frankly. We have a waterfront that could also be, be more celebrated, but the river for sure is so unique. We talked about good and bad things that have happened. Can I keep going? Yes. I have a list. Yes. Um, um, we've done some, lately, we've done some great infill happening in Traverse City, and it's been, there's been some resistance to it. But, but we've succeeded. There's been some nice buildings and some appropriate infill. Uh, we have a really vibrant downtown that's not a given. When Joan and I moved here, 
Um, it wasn't dying on the vine, but there was one restaurant downtown. There was one restaurant on a Sunday night. And so it's come, it's come incredibly far, and it's to the credit of the community and the neighborhoods and a handful of leaders that have really kept it and made it really vibrant. The neighborhoods are the same way. The neighborhoods are really vibrant, and people want to live there. And that doesn't happen automatically either. You know, the mall came, sprawl really took off when we first moved here, and it, other towns, it emptied them out. That's not what happened here. These are all good things that we've done. And, and a lot of it had to, had to do with the planning efforts of Russ Soaring and the planning department and the people that are still there. Really visionary in the sense and leading nationally on how we should act. And they were, you know, they were on the front line and you know, they were lambasted a lot, but they still did the right thing. And, and it, we have them to thank for a lot of that. Other ideas? There are other uh, topics. You, you covered almost everything, but I wanted to really specifically hone in on a few things besides the river. What about the bridges, the new bridges that just went over the river? The Fisher-Price Bridge, that one? <laughs> we don't like the one on Cass Street. The plastic one. Plastic. It's not so good. That's, Anyone else? That was unfortunate. But do people know that the plan for the Boardman River and all the bridges along the Boardman River actually won a state award, uh, AIA, which is the American Institute Architects Award. So we have uh, award-winning design that I think would, it's kind of, it's unique, but I think it could horrify people too if you saw what the designs looked like. And I don't know how many people have seen it, but it's you extremely- mean they're not built or the ones coming up? They're not built, but it's like, they're extremely modern and they're just, it's in so what, and it's not Fisher-Price modern, but it's still very modern. So it's like, it's just kind of, it goes back to like the bathhouse at Clinch Park is kind of different. And so it, this is that back to that form-based design idea, because I think that have you, you know, you all have seen the designs, haven't you? Or I don't think I have. I haven't. Okay. You're the only one. Really? The, for like yeah. new bridges? Yeah, they like literally it won a state award. Like, doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> I didn't okay, so let's go to uh, the new waterfront ordinance or the possible new waterfront ordinance, uh, the possible expansion of new liveries and marinas. Would that be a mistake, an opportunity, a success? Seems like an opportunity. We have a lot of water and a lot of people using it. So um, I don't own a boat personally, so I can't really say too much about this, but more marinas bring more people, more commerce, more activity, more more use, so um, that's just my opinion. They should be required to be all electric, I think, if they're gonna be new. Sure. <laughs> no gas-powered engines. Hey, it's happening. Do you guys know that it's happening? Electric no, boats? Electric yeah, boats. there's yeah. a charging station, in, I think, in Northport and Elk Rapids. It's like a whole new thing that they're gonna try to base in northern Michigan with electric motors and, and get rid of the gas, so. It, yeah. It's inevitable, I mean, it Keep your eye on that. Mm -hmm. What about the open space? We like the open space. <laughs> do you like it open all the time? I do. It's called yeah. the open space. It doesn't have a better name. That's a problem. What would you, <laughs> would you name it something else? I don't know. Okay. I what think it, some of us were bummed out when the Traverse City Light and Power building was torn down on the open space. Not the, the power plant, too. That was cool. The blue one with the stack. But... The brick one that was right next to it that was all glass windows and you could see all the machinery inside. Does anyone remember that building? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was cool. I wish they wouldn't have torn that down. It would like, to me, the open space would be 
even better if there was maybe just like a little bit of an anchor building now that there's nothing but the Harbor Master house and the Bijou. So I, that, to me, I think that we really need to think twice before we take down an old building. I think that repurposing some things might be, we'd be better served. The Grandview Parkway. What about it? Well, it needs to be tamed, right? I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's there for cars, not for people. And those of us that aren't driving it all the time can't get across. I mean, we're a town that, you know, we welcome tourists and we welcome beach people and we welcome people downtown and, and we've designed it for cars. And that seems backwards. Our downtown, should we extend the tax increment financing? Why or why not? We're just architects. Yeah, We're yeah. just yeah. architects. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Okay, uh, communication with East Bay and Elmwood Townships, extensions of Traverse City, al both along the waterfront. Well, I think TART's trying to do that, or and is succeeding in doing that, I believe, where they're making those connections to outlying townships, and I think that's a good thing. I think there's been a lot of conversation about the width of the TART trail that's upcoming. It's gonna be like 15 feet wide, and I've heard different varying opinions of why do we need to make a road, and so, I'd like to hear what other people think about that. But it's is it really that wide? We were talking about it this weekend. Yeah. Is it really 15 feet wide? It's pretty wide. 16 feet wide. <clears throat> That's a road. It is a road. It, it seems to me, it's always seemed to me that the bay in Traverse City is it's like the Embarcadero in San Francisco. Like it, It's flat and conducive for walking and biking and pushing carts. And there's no reason why we couldn't have that from from Elmwood all the way to Acme. I mean, you should just be able to stroll mm -hmm. that promenade. It, it's There's no real nature value. It's just road and then beach. So why not make it an experience rather than just something that you drive by as fast as possible? Well, that's, that's similar to what me. Chicago's got, like, what, mm -hmm. 15 miles of uninterrupted pathways along the lakeshore? Right. Some of it right up against Lakeshore Drive. So It'd be cool. Okay, our last item under the successes, mistakes, and opportunities. Let's talk about leadership. What are the opportunities? And Susanna, you um, made a very strong point about the power of neighborhood associations. So what are the opportunities that our civic leaders and citizens have before them? Ken, would you like to lead in? I, I think it's what I've already said. We have a lot to lose. We have an incredible place that's fairly intact, and we need leaders that understand that on all levels, and I include everyone here as those leaders. I mean, we need to all step up. Everybody's here because they're somehow engaged or concerned enough to be here, and, I, and that's how things happen. That, that is what leadership is, in my opinion. It doesn't mean you're the mayor, necessarily. It means that you're in the trenches, you know, making noise and trying to do the right thing. That is the leadership we need, and the town, this town's always been really great about that and welcoming that kind of input to Susanna's point. You can really make a difference here if you want to. In fact, you have to be careful what you say because suddenly you'll be responsible for it, so. <laughs> here's just a, wait, are you gonna? Oh, no, no, I wasn't saying anything. So just here's an example of a small, very small thing that I thought was huge at the time. So there are these detectable sidewalk surfaces that are at each intersection where the sidewalk meets the road and they were redoing our road in Central Neighborhood, and it was becoming clear to me that they were going to use bright yellow plastic sidewalk surfaces in those 
segments of the corner. So I was like on a mission. You know, I was like, what? You know, they're coming down. They're coming closer. The concrete truck is like two blocks away. And I was talking to Tim Lodge and the Brian Crow and the city and. I, you know, if he can give me a proposal of something that they could use instead, then we'll consider it as long as it's approved by MDOT. So I found a cast iron surface by, you know, East Jordan Ironworks that MDOT approved and paid the extra money to have them installed at our corner of Fifth and Oak. And, um, and it was like a big deal because I, I thought it would ruin the whole intersection and it would have. Yellow plastic, they get ripped up by the sidewalk, snow plows, and they're all shredded now in the neighborhood. They've, they've changed the standard to all cast iron now because the plastic was just crap. So, I, you know, I was just like a person. I was just like, wanted to not have that happen and it, it worked. So I think if you really care about something and go for it, then, it, you know, there you go. There's real support here for ideas like that. You know, I mean, we have our, our politics like anybody does, but there's real support for a good idea well presented, and people say, "All right." Just because they're because re they're real people. It's like the city is our like neighbors. Scary. Right? It's like real people, like right. just our trying neighbors. to do something that they think is the right thing to do. Yeah. And they need input. It's not like they they can't operate in a vacuum. And I think they really care about people um, emailing and expressing their opinions, and they read them, and it matters. And if they don't hear from people, then they just think that people don't care. Anyone, anyone else before we conclude on the topic of leadership, civic engagement? All right. Okay, well, we would love for uh, this conversation to keep going. And so you're all invited to join us at the Little Fleet, located just a few blocks north at East Front and Wellington. The Common Good Bakery has prepared some tasty morsels for us, and the bar is open. And so Susanna, Ray, Michael, Ken, and Peter, thank you very much for sharing your insight and your experience with the audience. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. you have been listening to Architecture, Design, and Community Influence, a conversation with architects Susanna Tobin, Ray Kendra, Peter Smith, Michael Fitzhugh, and Ken Richmond, Recorded on October 17, 2023, at the Alluvian in Traverse City, Michigan. The production was conceptualized by Jill Vincent of Through an Open Eye Media and co produced with the Traverse Cityist, with the support of Boomerang Catapult and Tusentuck Foundation. This episode of the Traverse Cityist was sponsored by Sarah Bourgeois Architects. Learn more at sbourgeois.com. The Traversityist creates content that is intended to facilitate common understandings, traditions, and values, with the goal of building a sense of local identity and solidarity. If you'd like to learn more about how you can support our work, visit traversityist.com. I'm Gretchen Carr. Thank you for listening to The Traversityist.